Hey everyone, I'm Lee Jin, and I'm here with my co-host Nathan Bashez. How's it going? This is Means of Creation, our podcast where we are talking about the passion economy and the future of work. And it is brought to you by Every, a writer collective that's focused on business. Our guest for this episode is Alex Kantaritz. Um, Why did we think that it was important to have him on the show as a guest? Well, I've been a fan of Alex's work for a long time when he was at BuzzFeed and now that he's an independent journalist doing his own thing on Substack. And I just always like that he's got this perspective that's both from analyzing what the big companies are doing and why, like he in his book talks about how he went and talked to Mark Zuckerberg about the decisions that Facebook are making. And he really understands what makes these companies tick. But also he's got this perspective of an individual creator. And so he can kind of connect the dots in a way that I think very few can. Exactly. And we went into this conversation with a really key question in our minds, which is a question that I get asked all the time, which is why is the creator economy suddenly this huge deal to all of these big tech companies? Right. Like why now? Like Exactly. They've had creators on their platforms for ever since they started existing, but it seems like something has really probably shifted in just the past year or so where all of these big tech companies are newly paying attention to and serving the needs of creators first and foremost. So we thought Alex would be the perfect person to discuss this with, given that he's been studying their inner workings for a really long time. He wrote Always Day One. Um, And beyond that, he also brings the perspective of an independent creator. Yeah, I think you're going to love this episode if you're interested in the big tech perspective, particularly Facebook and Twitter, um, to some extent also the others like YouTube and Amazon. But really, we we go in kind of deep on like what Twitter's doing or Twitter spaces, the opportunities available in podcasting, you know, like what Spotify is doing. There's just a lot of interesting ground that we cover. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be on with you, Lee and Nathan. I'm a fan of both of your work, uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to get a chance to speak with you about this Oh, stuff. thank you. Oh, so thank nice. you. I read your stuff, uh, and I think that what you're both doing is exactly where things are going. And mm. I look at your writing and your decisions for inspiration for my own business. So thanks again for the opportunity thank to chat you. with you. Okay, so I wanted to start our conversation off with a question that I've been getting a lot recently, and I never really know how to answer this, which is what has changed in the past few years within big tech companies to make the creator economy such a hot topic? Like, why are they paying attention to creators now more so than ever before? These big social platforms have been around for a long time. Creators have existed for as long as they've existed. But what has changed to make the creator economy a thing now? So with social platforms, I think they've gone through an evolution where we originally thought that people, user-generated content would be simple and people would just create lots of stuff and their algorithms would sort it and that would be it. And they wouldn't really have to put any effort in, in terms of developing the people that are actually creating that content. What we found was that a small percentage of the population is actually able to make stuff that a larger percentage of the population wants to consume. And there is a market for stuff like friends and family posts, like you'll see on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, by and large, I think the platforms have understood that they're in competition for creators. And mm. I think this really began um, with the death of Vine. Where, if you remember, uh, Vine was the hottest social app on the planet for a minute. And the creators. Do it for the Vine. Yeah, do it for the Vine. 
the creators got smart about it. They went to Twitter and they said, your app is being powered by a handful of us. And we like your app, but you need to pay us uh, because you're getting all the economic benefit of this and we're not getting any of it. And Twitter said no. And what happened was all those people left Twitter and they went to YouTube and they went to Snapchat and uh, and then Vine fell apart and Twitter had to shut it down. It just can can um, it could not uh, recover from that type of blow. So I think that that was the I think all social platforms paid attention to that and realized that they have to uh, really roll the red carpet out for creators because they're going to end up making their platforms compelling. And so now you're starting to see that you know from everything from like you know TikTok. I think they have a creators mm-hmm. fund. Clubhouse, they have, you know, Clubhouse is trying to do their own version of this. And we're starting to see it trickle into things like, um, well, we talked about social audio, but newsletters as well with stuff like, you know, Twitter's play on uh, uh, integrating review and then eventually introducing the super follow and Facebook. Of course, there's been rumors that Facebook wants to do its own newsletter platform. It's definitely doing its social audio platform. Um, And I think that they... All these all these companies are extremely competitive, and they know that they need uh, to give people a reason to actually go and create content on their platforms. They're not just going to show up and make it because the tools exist. And so we're starting to see a maturation in that type of world where um, all of a sudden the people that are creating the content matter a lot more than the products. It sounds like the core driver of the story is basically it's driven by user preference. Where where do we where do we put our attention? it seems like we're putting it towards stuff that was created by someone who's kind of specialized more often than we used to. Whereas it used to be kind of like, you know, just your friend that was firing off a quick photo from like a trip or something, someone else firing off a quick video of them being, doing something funny or whatever. Like, even though you don't know them is like maybe more interesting or someone, you know, making a joke or whatever. Like there's, there's lots of different, um, you know, mediums to try it, but do you, is that sort of just the core thing is like, the early days of social media were built around stuff from people, you know, and it turns out that's just less interesting than stuff from people who are interesting. I would say that's half right. I uh-huh. think that the early days of social media were built around stuff from people, you know, and the ideas like um, people in Valley, I was working marketing before I went into journalism and I wrote the deck for the company I was at about why we should go on Facebook and not MySpace. And, you know, the idea that there were brands and news publishers and any other specialized form of content going on social media in the early days was ludicrous. Uh, and it had to be socialized internally inside an organization, you know, for them to even, you know, give it some thought. And this wasn't too long ago. I mean, I was making these decks in like 2009, 2008 right. uh, and uh, 2010. So we're in 2021 now. It's like we're 10, 11, 12 years into this thing actually being mainstream. So I think what's happened is we we have moved to this specialized. Uh, it, this we've we've moved to having more attention on specialized things, things like people like you know clubhouse creators and uh, Vine creators and all that stuff and brands and news organizations on these platforms because just the the aperture of social media has expanded, right? Because now instead of just having a Facebook news feed where you post pictures of you know you coming home drunk from a college party, right? Uh, we've migrated a lot of content creation, a lot of our communication, a lot of our entertainment onto social media platforms. Uh, and so this expansion has led to uh, the development of, you know, more creation and more expectation, frankly, from a consumer mm-hmm. standpoint. I think this is a really interesting topic. And I completely agree with your sort of assessment of how um, the big tech companies are now kind of like waking up to the fact that 
the, the creators really matter to their core platform. They're the drivers of value for the end consumers and therefore they need to be compensated and, and served and like valued accordingly. Um, I think this raises though an interesting question, especially for me with my investor hat on looking at startups all day in the creator economy, which is like, are the startups who are trying to build better creator monetization tools, are they a sustaining innovation that would be better capitalized on by the big tech companies? Um, they can just be, they're basically creating features that can be grafted on to the big tech companies, or are they truly disruptive? And are they doing something that, you know, are, is going to be neglected and kind of overlooked by the big social platforms? And the more that I think about this question, the more that I have come to believe that a lot of the startups in the space are actually building sustaining innovations that would be better off mm. if they were housed as part of the larger social platforms. Because if we think of creator monetization as a funnel, um, monetization basically sits at the bottom of the funnel and discovery sits on top. And the big social platforms are the best places to go in order to be right. discovered. Um, but I'm curious to get your thoughts here on sustaining versus disruptive innovation and like what is the place of these startups that are trying to better serve creators? Yeah, it's really hard to be a startup and do that. And your job is very difficult because you have to sort of pick out the ones that you think can actually have staying power versus the ones that will get scooped up by the platforms. Uh, you know, there's there's advantages and disadvantages. The one nice thing about being a startup is you don't have any of the, you know, legacy burden, uh, and you can really serve the whole market as opposed to having to wonder about your legacy products. Let me give you an example. So Apple is now introducing paid subscriptions to its podcast mm -hmm. product, which is great. But because Apple is uh, so maniacally focused on keeping the iPhone market the way that it is, uh, it's restricted those podcast subscriptions to its uh, to its um, iPhone users only people out using Apple podcasts so for for you know as a, if you're building something let's say you're a supercast which does uh, you know a subscription podcast monetization that works across platforms uh, you have an advantage against uh, Apple because you can offer podcast creators the ability to do paid subscriptions not just on Apple podcasts but on overcast and Spotify and all the, all the rest. Um, so that's an example where a startup does have an opportunity to capitalize on the limitations that a bigger technology company would place on itself uh, because it cares more about its legacy mm -hmm. product than the new product that it's building. For the life of me, you know, I can't understand why some of the big tech companies like Apple, uh, you know, don't see this and realize that they're susceptible. Right. Uh, but uh, it, it just happens to be the case that, um, they're often very slow to figure this out and they have this, you know, big, massive legacy business, you know, and all the big tech companies cases, you know, nearing, you know, nearing trillion dollar businesses or above, uh, sometimes too. And they're very slow to actually, um, you know, come to work every day, uh, and, uh, build the best product for the market and not the thing that's going to sustain their legacy product. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at with the book title always day one is that the companies, the big companies that do this well come to work and they don't care about legacy. Uh, a company like Amazon will happily cannibalize everything that it's doing if it thinks that 
the market is bigger, you know, and it wants to be the one that builds that. But not every big tech company will do that, such as mm-hmm. Apple. With the Apple example, it's perfect. Encapsulation right. of the big incumbents, uh, slowness to move. So I think that's where the opportunities are going to be generally. Yeah. Specifically with Apple, I think it would make, I'm really surprised that they're not doing Apple Podcast Plus, where it's like the same thing as Apple TV Plus, where it's centrally funded, they're funding high production value stuff. For Apple to fund like a high production value podcast would just be such a drop in the bucket because the cost, I mean, they've done some, but like, I'm surprised they're not doing more basically. And that's not more of the focus because the creator monetization angle is just so rough for them. Like they don't want to give up any control. It's like creators want it to be across platforms. Apple doesn't, but Mm. for Apple to just be like, cool, here's a million dollars to make a podcast. And to just do that like 50 times would be seriously nothing for Apple cash wise, but would be really meaningful in the podcast market. I think you're spot on. I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to start to see a competition between Apple and Spotify for original podcast content. Yeah. Uh, And that's going to be really exciting. So Apple, I just, uh, this past week, I just listened to Apple's first, like I think Apple original or Apple TV plus original podcast. Uh I don't know exactly how they categorize it. It's a podcast called The Line. And it's about um, these Navy SEALs that were accused of war crimes and actually went to trial and, uh, the podcaster uh, actually goes and sits with the people who are in the platoon and, um, you know, gives like a history of the Navy SEALs. And honestly, it's one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Uh, and it came right out of Apple's production hmm. uh, arm. So uh, I think that was a way for them to test what they're going to do in the future. And I think you're spot on. I think this is where things are going. And um, yeah, creator monetization uh, is doesn't seem like something that's going to work for them, at least yeah. from my vantage point. And it fits into the larger Apple One bundle. I forget what it's called, but it's their big bundle where you get mm. fitness and Apple Music and extra storage for like photos and stuff. It's just like this big bundle. And I think it makes total sense for Apple to approach it more like a Netflix or like Amazon Prime video where it's just like here, you know, services revenue galore. We'll spend a lot of fixed costs and make it up by having just this subscription that lots of people can can access. And that, that creates a sustainable, sustainable competitive advantage because they have this, you know, fixed cost structure that's like, oh, what other, how many other companies can just like invest, you know, 50 million in original podcast production? Like not very many. Not many. Um, and like, even though Amazon, it seems like Amazon wants to do this. Like they bought Wondery, big podcast production studio, but like, what's their channel? Like there's no audio channel that Amazon, I mean, I guess they have Audible, but like, it feels like a, I don't know, different, they don't have a podcast app. Yeah. I mean, I think that's with Amazon, it's just a case of them throwing whatever they can against the wall and seeing what will stick. With Apple, they have a difficult sell. You know, Prime, Amazon Prime is an easy sell. Sign up to Prime, you get free shipping in a day or two. Mm-hmm. Apple, the Apple Prime or whatever they call it, it's a more difficult sell because it's like, all right, you'll get storage. All right, people don't really see the benefit of storage in their day to day. You know, you might get some content while well, there's Netflix and, uh, you know, Prime and, and HBO and Showtime out there. Uh, maybe you get some great original podcasts. So it's much more meaningful for Apple than it is for an Amazon, I would say. Yeah, no, that's true. That is interesting. What Apple should do is offer, like, you can skip the line on when the new iPhone comes out, like they give it to their subscribers first. That would be, I mean, you, you'd end up, if they did that, you'd end up hitting like the, the true fans and the early adopters anyway. Right. That would be smart, but you'd piss everybody else off. That's so. true. Not that <laughs> Apple cares. Apple seems to be fine with making decisions that make people angry. So I want to pull yeah. us out of this Apple hole 
for a little bit (laughs) (laughs) and move on to another big tech company, Facebook. Um, So you've been recently covering the Facebook Oversight Board, uh, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe just quickly for the folks in the audience who aren't familiar with the Facebook Oversight Board and like what it's been making decisions about recently, um, could you just quickly summarize that? Absolutely. So Facebook has this thing called the Oversight Board and the Oversight Board makes decisions on content moderation choices that Facebook has. And it is a group of, I think, 39 members. It will go up to maybe a couple dozen more than that. Facebook has selected and they don't work for Facebook. They're paid through trust. And uh, when Facebook has really tough content moderation choices that it doesn't want to make itself, it can refer them to the board. And then these independent, quote unquote, I mean, quasi independent members will make the decision and and they have final say. So, you know, if Facebook is going to keep this thing legitimate, um, when the oversight board rules on a decision, uh, it's their choice and and their choice alone that sticks. So one of the things that the board was uh, recently tasked with was uh, evaluating the suspension, the indefinite suspension that Facebook put on Donald Trump's access to his accounts after the January January Mm -hmm. 6 riots. Uh, And it was really interesting because essentially Facebook uh, said we're going to suspend Trump indefinitely and they referred it to the board saying, all right, give this a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Do you approve it or you know, do you strike down the suspension? And the oversight board went back to Facebook and said, you know, we're not going to do either of those uh, because you pulled you know, this uh, rule out of a hat. It doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, and so if you want us to actually make decisions, you're going to actually have to write real rules uh, as opposed to like, you know, have us rubber stamp the things that you do on a whim. Uh, And so now Hmm. that decision is back with Facebook and they'll eventually, uh, uh, you know, make a, make a rule or, you know, actually try to, um, you know, find some structure versus this ambiguous, indefinite, indefinite suspension. And then the board will rule again. So there's a lot of controversy Mm -hmm. around it. People say that it's, um, you know, a group that is offloading the response that Facebook is offloading its responsibility on, and it's a red herring meant for us to look at. Uh, uh, you know, you know, as if Facebook is a democracy where we know that it's right. literally just the kingdom. I compared so. it to the um, French Revolution's yeah. revolutionary tribunal on Twitter, yeah. like the semblance of justice and democracy, mm-hmm. when really it's a handpicked yes. small number of people that Facebook selected. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think that that viewed out view yeah viewed um without the proper well yeah viewed without the proper context um it can be looked at as a destructive institution maybe it is maybe it's just a cynical play for facebook to try to offload any responsibility and make everybody think it's good and doing the right thing it's possible Uh, but i also think the institution itself is is a step Mm -hmm. in the right direction uh Mm -hmm. and you know you have like three categories of people that could be making content decisions on facebook you have Facebook alone, uh, you have the government, and then you have you know some form of quasi-independent board like the Facebook Oversight Board. And I think it's probably the least bad option. I the think three. there's a fourth option, which is maybe turning it over to the users. Well, Facebook's done that in the past. Uh, really? In the early days, yeah. Facebook let uh, users make some vote. vote. They, they tossed over, um, I forgot whether it was content moderation or policy or product decisions that they tossed over to the user base and allowed people to vote in a poll on the Whoa. Newsfeed. And participation was actually extremely yeah. low. Uh, hmm. And so they did away with I it. See. But 
I actually like what Lee's saying here. Uh, yeah. Maybe we do, uh, you know, go full democracy on this bad boy and uh, turn it over to the users. I think so, because ultimately they are the stakeholders that are impacted by whatever decision, you know, is made. Like they're the ones who have to use the platform. Could you imagine the campaigning that would? Oh go my gosh, on? it would be really oh, good for really Facebook's good for engagement, uh, engagement yeah, the numbers. The ad platform, the ad yeah. platform would go bonkers. <laughs> yeah, I so. I really like the. So you laid out um, in one of your recent newsletters, kind of like the both sides of the argument. The Facebook overs- oversight board is a scam. Was one argument. The Facebook oversight board mm-hmm. is good is the other argument and i thought that was a really balanced take but i want to ask you what your personal view is and what you like which side of that debate you're on and what you think is the ideal solution well i i am for it uh i think that this is a good thing to try uh generally you know i've been in some of the facebook content moderation decisions uh the meetings and I think that I can't reveal like the specific content because um, there's some agreement around that, but it was very interesting to see how they work. And I think that oftentimes uh, companies with elaborate content moderation apparatuses can uh, create an illusion for themselves that they're actually working in a fair and democratic way. Uh, and I think that offloading as much of that as possible outside of Menlo Park offices uh, or whatever Facebook, you know, Zoom uh, councils uh, is probably the best way to do it. Um, I don't think the oversight board is perfect. Uh, obviously, Zuckerberg helped design the bylaws, helped pick the members. So it's still Facebook in a sense. But um, ultimately, I think that we do want some form of independent bodies making these decisions, whether it is the oversight board or potentially the full user base, like you suggest, Lee. Yeah. And we got to try it. I think that like there's been so much reactionary anti-Facebook sentiment uh, floating out there in the world. A lot of it merited, but you know some of it just knee-jerk. Uh, and I, I think that that's been, by and large, the reason why we've seen so much negative sentiment around this experiment. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's a worthy experiment, and you know we can see where it goes, and yeah. you know potentially the outside voices will help shape its direction, and I think they already have. Um, you know, in, in some ways, I saw the Trump decision as the board responding to some of the criticism, saying that they're just there to rubber stamp Facebook's decisions, uh, and it was interesting that the board went back to Facebook and said, uh, you know, not good enough, do better. Uh, yeah. And then we'll make a decision. And so I think that they are, you know, Facebook did give them some power. And I think they're making the most of that power. And that's encouraging to me. I do like that the incentive, it's, it would seem to me, of the people on there now is to say, hey, like, if if our institution that we're obviously bought into because we're, we're working on it is like mm-hmm. going to be respected, we're going to have to flex some of our power. And like, we can't just like go with what Facebook wants. Otherwise, because everyone kind of expects it to be a little bit of a sham. So like, it's kind of like on them to prove otherwise. So I kind of like that they're biased against supporting Facebook's decisions, basically. Um, Like, because, because, yeah, I don't know, I think it'd be interesting. But to me, the larger thing, this is like a separate idea that I'm curious if you see this having any chance of working or coming to exist. But I feel like we need something kind of like the United Nations for social platforms, where maybe there's because this is across 
all platforms, this behavior. There's coordinated activity that happens on Discord and then people brigade someone on Twitter mm. or there's a YouTube video that goes viral on Facebook or what, there's just all sorts of cross-platform behavior. And I, and I do think that there needs to be more of a like coordinated body that has transparent deliberations. Like the UN Security Council has meetings and reporters can observe them and report on them and we can sort of know why they're making the decisions there. Obviously these platforms are to some extent there's like cross talk, right? Um, but I think probably everyone's really worried about. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what they might be worried about of why why not to coordinate these things. But it's not the kind of thing where you get a huge competitive advantage out of your moderation decisions. This is more like it's it's positive and negative externalities for society that we we all have a stake in. And we all want to see. We all want to see action on because it feels like the internet is not safe enough or good enough um, for for what most people want. So I don't. Know, I'm curious if you see any sort of cross you know, platform coordination mm-hmm. happening. There's already some cross-platform coordination. They share uh, image hashes, I believe, for stuff like terrorist recruitment and child pornography. Hmm. So if these images appear on one, like appear on Twitter, Facebook and Google will be able to recognize them and take them down. Uh, some some sort of collaboration like that exists. The broader coordination is, um, is tricky uh, because... Um, you know, I think that people might end up saying that there's this conspiratorially minded right. central body that's conspiring to take down the type of content that they do. Um, I, I think that we should allow them to talk uh, and and compare notes on this stuff. Uh, but I also kind of think that like market outcomes are also uh, a good like being able to to do this in a market where each company can kind of come up with their own solution and. Um, see how their user bases react and learn is a pretty good way to go about it. Like the fact that Facebook suspended Trump indefinitely, but Twitter, and, and, but you know, threw it to a oversight board, but Twitter completely banned him. And you know, watching how society and the world reacts to these two different types of uh, approaches, as opposed to having one centralized approach, uh, might be good uh, in the end. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm just thinking back on this conversation that we recently had with um, Kat Tenbarge, who's a reporter at Insider. And we were discussing how Mm -hmm. a lot of creators today have this kind of um, like they have this kind of goal in the back of their minds as they're creating content and building their public brand, which is to become uncancelable. And Mm -hmm. they try to cultivate this um, uncancelability by always towing the line and kind of building their brand in a way such as to to cultivate such a loyal base of followers and and so they can never be canceled and right and to kind of vaccinate their followers against yeah. the idea that they're like angels you know like they'll mm-hmm. like intentionally tow the line so that they sort of develop a reputation for like whatever being edgy and then when something bad comes out, like with the New York Times reporting that Taylor Lorenz did on Jake Paul's behavior, everyone was like, all right, <laughs> you know, makes sense. <laughs> like, I could see him doing that. And so it didn't really end up right. damaging him very much because the people who support him already, you know, were kind of vaccinated against that uh, yeah. story. I don't think if you're a Jake Paul fan, you're looking for him to be right. a role model for proper yeah. behavior. And yeah. I think it's interesting because Donald Trump is like someone that comes to mind as someone who is very much uncancelable. Mm-hmm. Like his his supporters very much expect his behavior and are never, um, they never find it abhorrent or appalling or anything like that. And so um, in this situation, 
I think it could have really only taken something like Facebook as a platform or the Facebook oversight board or this like entity to unilaterally make a decision to deplatform someone. Wait, so in terms of like, uh, when, when yeah. you say that, you know, and, and related when, when that's related to the uncancelability of someone, mm-hmm. um, so are you saying that the oversight board does have the ability to cancel someone? Or Facebook or? does. Like the only, Facebook like does. for some of these creators, yeah. I'm calling Donald right. Trump a creator now. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not yeah. really far off, honestly, yeah. creator in chief. Right. Like yeah. the, the only way that they can be canceled is by through platforms actions. Right. Yeah. This is why I love email, by the way. Uh, and podcasts are, I mean, podcasts and, and email. snail mail. Uh, you can't snail mail. Uh, although the post office, knows, <laughs> but, um, right. you can't, you can't get canceled on email, uh, because you know, you can get unsubscribed to, but you know, when you talk about, if you, if you look at a platform to mediate your relationships with, uh, with your, your, uh, the people who are reading your work or listening to your songs or, uh, you know, f- engaging with your tweets or watching your videos, uh, you're you're inherently at a disadvantage. A, you're going to be paying a tech tax no matter what, uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and B, you know, if they decide to turn off the spigot or ban your account or um, or change the algorithm, you're you're toast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I, I wrote this on Twitter, but like for a journalist, an email, ad, someone giving you an email address is the most important thing that they could ever do is the most valuable thing they could do because you know as once you start making this connection via email it doesn't matter what else happens you will have that that audience and that connection and i think that that's you know in my perspective one way to be uncancelable and you know just bringing it full circle it's funny to me that twitter and facebook are now you know getting their email and podcast or whatever uh social audio uh efforts underway because a lot of this movement towards these formats has been a reaction to the fickleness of the social algorithms and a Mm -hmm. desire for people to insulate themselves from, you know, the up and down decisions that Facebook and Twitter might make. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to see, Hey, what about us? Well, a lot of people went this other way because they saw what you were doing and didn't want to be subject to it anymore. So it'll be a very interesting battle. We'll see how that will play out. Yeah, totally. It's funny because I think that there's sort of like, there's the thing about email that's like, it's almost like on the level of crypto where it's like, um, it's totally decentralized. And, you know, like there are big players like Gmail, where if Gmail decides they want to start filtering messages coming from you, then it's going to be hard to reach a lot of people. But still, to some degree, you can, you can operate. And then there's this like, more practical thing, which is just like, when I tweet my article, I don't know what percent of my followers are going to see it, but it's like way less than it, the percent of people that can email from me when I publish a new post. And so I feel like social platforms could almost kneecap a lot of the movement to email by just having better ways of ensuring delivery. Like Twitter has the like turn on mobile notifications thing, but like I just feel like platforms could do better to be like, you know, and YouTube does this too, where, you know, you've, you've got the, like, you can turn on alerts or whatever when there's new posts. But um, I feel like that's the main reason why people are moving to email, not sort of this like crypto-esque, like it never goes away type philosophy. It's just literally like, you know, what percent of my following is going to see when I post. Yeah, totally. 
and um, you know you when you're uh, publishing something on like a social platform, you know that people can see the link, then they have to click the link, then they actually have to read. Whereas with an email, it just comes right into your yeah. inbox and it's there. So even though like my Twitter my Twitter following is three times the size of my email list, uh, I'll have you know thousands more people read the email versus you know click the link. Totally. Well, I want to before we shift to talking about um, you know your strategy as a creator, which I think will be a good fascinating kind of like second segment of the conversation. I wanted to ask kind of about, cause we touched on social audio just briefly before. And um, like we also touched on, I think a related question to it, which is, is it a sustaining innovation relative to Twitter? Like mm. basically is clubhouse a sustaining innovation for existing social networks or is it a disruptive innovation? Uh, and you know, the clay Christensen analysis is basically like, does it add more value to the types of people who are already using the incumbents product? Like, does it plug right in? And I think the answer is yes. And I think you do too. Cause you yes, uh, kind of like, trouble, honestly, yeah, at the peak of front. clubhouse mania, I wrote a post <laughs> where you were bullish on Twitter spaces. So I'm yeah. curious, just like taking a step back, like what do you, what's like sort of the big picture to you of, of live audio right now? Yeah. So I got in uh, a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> my mentions were like totally uh, unmanageable for a week after I wrote that people working to build followings on Clubhouse were wasting their time. <laughs> and this was going to be a feature on Twitter. Uh, and that that seems uh, to be proving out uh, pretty well, where Clubhouse has hit some trouble. Um, the app feels quieter and more boring uh, than it ever has before. And, you know, I don't know if Twitter spaces necessarily has, like, supplanted it yet, but it does feel a lot more natural to join a Twitter space than it does to... Uh, you know, uh, open up Clubhouse and start something, or see, you know, something uh, and and uh, and start it. I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously like my perspective is obviously um, you know a little skewed because I you know have an audience on Twitter and I use Twitter you know pretty pretty frequently, and so it's much easier for me to build you know a space there versus uh something on clubhouse and people have argued yes it's precisely because the blue check marks aren't on clubhouse which is why clubhouse is good but i'm gonna go back to my uh earlier point which is that like creating content is hard and there's only a small segment of the population that is able to do it well that are able to moderate these conversations well uh and there's a lot of overlap with the people you know who've been able to do this professionally whether that's as journalists or media personalities or you know, have followings on Twitter um, due to their insights on startups and stuff like that. So that's a long way of me saying I'm uh, as bearish as I ever have been on Clubhouse uh, and uh, think it's way overvalued. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I go in there, uh, you know, fairly frequently out of curiosity and uh, am very often underwhelmed by what I see. Although there are moments where uh, I'll see some cool stuff like, Yesterday, I went in uh, and saw, you know, Palestinians and Israelis speaking with each other and had like they had this like open forum. And that's like one of those special moments on social media that make you say, oh, this is kind of cool. And every social platform has had that. Facebook have had those has had those special moments. Twitter has had those special moments. And now they're occurring on Clubhouse. And that's pretty cool. Uh, but um, long story short, I'm bearish on Clubhouse uh, I think it will fade into the background of social media and be largely forgotten uh, fairly soon. I think it's a very good feature on Twitter. Uh, we'll see what will happen on Facebook. I don't think it will be as 
uh, impressive with Facebook, but you know, never bet against Facebook in the social space. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I would say if we're talking about disruptive versus sustaining uh, innovation, uh, I just think that this isn't going to be something that's going to disrupt the social platforms uh, or even podcasting all that much. I initially was like, oh, God, what's this going to do to podcasting? Right. I just launched a podcast and now everyone's going to spend their time on Clubhouse. But I haven't seen you know much of a blip at all in the numbers after uh, Clubhouse's height. So. I'm not counting on on uh, social audio to be, you know, a core part of the social media experience um, anytime soon. Spicy take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, now I'm going to get a new round of hate mail, but I'm, I'm yeah. cool with it. I got to stand with what I believe. So I think this is what I believe. Just- Dora, we'll make it really easy. We'll we'll excerpt this and put it in Twitter in a little <laughs> clip, so that way people can easily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take it out of context. Dunk everyone. Dunk away. Yeah. As you're speaking, I just th- I feel like it's so hard to build a new consumer social network nowadays. That is what yeah. really strikes. Totally. Me. But okay. But yeah, it's hard. But um, but TikTok. TikTok you know, did I, it. And I know TikTok is is uh, is uh, a couple years old and has, has lots of money and all that stuff. But um, the thing just exploded uh, in a moment where people said there won't be another social app. Yeah. Right. And. I don't know about you guys. I am addicted oh, to totally. that thing. And uh, I spend, I used to, sp- I mean, yeah, I spend way more time on it than I would and on, I, on Facebook or Instagram. That's I guess sure. the distinction between TikTok and why it was able to succeed versus how Clubhouse is doing is that the social graph mm-hmm. is totally different. It's it's not a social graph. It's yes. an interest graph. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the type of content you're consuming and engaging with is totally distinct from the types of people that you would be following on any pre-existing social network. It's interesting because sometimes I think TikTok's core innovation, like there's a couple for sure that are really key, but maybe the core innovation is just like universal basic distribution. Mm-hmm. Where like, yes, no matter who posts, mm-hmm. like no matter what you post, you're going to get like shown to maybe a hundred people, you know? Right. And, and those the reaction that those people have will determine if you get shown to more people. And it's like, yeah. why don't more That's, platforms do really this? It feels like Twitter should do, do this. That. With tweets. It's really disruptive yeah. to do yeah. that nowadays when most of the social networks work off of some preferential attachment model where the rich just get richer. Yeah. If you're influential, you just get more influential. And if you're not influential, no one sees your posts. And and TikTok totally yeah. turned that upside down. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. And don't don't you think that Clubhouse has like could it, Clubhouse could do that uh in some way? Like find a way to to blast out rooms to everyone in that hallway that they have. I think and, so. You know, give people. But, you know, the thing is, when you make a TikTok video, um, I mean, I know there's effort, uh, but it's not like, you know, I, I feel like the there's, okay, so if you're in a boring clubhouse room or if you're in a poorly attended clubhouse room, that's like a half hour or an hour of feeling bad. Right. You know, whereas like the the joy in making the TikTok is there, you know, as you make it and you want to make it as good as you can. And then you throw it out there to that algorithm and see what happens. So I, I do think that, that this is one of the, the reasons why clubhouse is going to fail is because, um, do you guys know like Disneyland has uh, a way where they rank, uh, your good experiences versus your bad experiences. It's been a while. So they call the good experiences, uh, magic moments and the mm. bad experiences, tragic moments. And I like that. <laughs> they've like have this algorithm or this sort of not algorithm, but this sort of uh, equation in their minds that uh, if you have 30 magic moments, all it takes is one tragic moment to mm. wipe it out and you'll have a mm. bad experience. And 
if you if you're a content creator and you spend an hour in a you know doing a clubhouse that has like 30 people in it that's like a full hour of tragic moments uh, right and then you don't want to go back again uh whereas tiktok is just filled with magic moments uh and yeah. so yeah so that's I, I don't know i mean i'm just riffing yeah here, but, i think um, it's i just find yeah, that interesting. I, I think like clubhouse could achieve that universal basic distribution that you were talking about nathan mm-hmm. but i think on the consumer side it's hard to make it as interesting as the, the type of content that you see on tiktok videos are right. so short snappy you know you have 30 seconds versus yeah. a clubhouse it I think audio just like it's harder to be interesting on on synchronous audio. Yes, agreed. right. It requires higher trust. Like mm-hmm. the I think the people who are going to listen to this for the most part, probably eighty percent of them will already have be familiar with at least one of the three of our writing, right? And like that's what gives them the confidence that this is a conversation that's going to be worth following. When you open up Clubhouse and you see names that you don't know and some topic that sounds maybe all right a little bit, it's just like you're kind of, it's a shot in the dark. Like even just the preview element of like TikTok, mm-hmm. like, well, there is no preview on the for you page, but like, let's say you go to somebody's profile, you see this little thumbnail that tells you way more than the clubhouse, you know, totally little thing can tell you um, of like, who's in the room right now. So anyway, just like the, the speed of information mm-hmm. in audio is just way, way, way slower. Yeah. Um, and it can be rich. Like I love listening to people have interesting conversations. That's why I love, listening to podcasts. I like making podcasts, but, um, I think that the podcast format is pretty great. Cause it's like, you, we get to have this, it's a moment in time. We're all here together. It's like set. And there's not like, you know, hopefully we can edit it if we need to, like, you know, there's, yeah. it's like, it's pretty good. And I think there's something really special about the, the most special thing about clubhouse is like, who, who like who could show up. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, we didn't know that Elon Musk was going to yeah. pop in. And then he said that thing. And that was crazy. But like, like the good versus the bad of live is like, how do how do you, does it, right. where does it weigh out? And I think and, the bad outweighs the good. Probably. Yeah. And this is why I think Twitter has such a big advantage because the whole, that whole, Oh, we don't know who can show up on it. Well, right. uh, if Elon Musk shows up on clubhouse, it's the biggest day in the app's history. If he shows up on Twitter, it's Wednesday. Right. And so you're just, you know, you're already following the people that you're interested in and you can hop in and out to conversations that they're having, you know, all day long. Not to mention they have what, like, uh, uh, one or 200 million daily active users where Clubhouse, you know, as, as much less. So I think yeah. Twitter. I could imagine Clubhouse. The thing that I could see Clubhouse doing is supplanting podcasts if they build in a recording feature because mm-hmm. it's way easier to record. You could still have some of the live stuff that's like a component of it and they'd have a much better, they'd have a back catalog. Imagine if you log into Clubhouse and it's like, the sum of all the interesting things that have ever happened there versus what's happening right now where you like jump in halfway through or whatever. Yeah. Well, it does take some also, of the energy away yeah. from the liveness, but like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's the trade off they have to make. It seems like something's fundamentally broken and they have to change something fundamentally. I would guess if I was yep. in their shoes, I would have to think about doing something like that, which is a hard thing to consider if you've got a $4 billion valuation or whatever, but yeah, like they'll have to pivot hard. It seems like they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what it's been like for you to go from the traditional media context to the independent creator context. What was, can you just tell us about the decision process and like the story behind it? Sure. Uh, so I uh, was at Buzzfeed for five years and left last June to start Big Technology, uh, which is my newsletter on Substack and podcast, Big Technology podcast. Um, you know, I left before this whole massive wave from traditional media began. 
Uh, mm-hmm. There was very few people that had done it. Uh, and uh, Did you do I, the Substack Pro thing? I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> I didn't know there was a possibility to get in advance. I just like was, you know, I'd been in touch with Hamish for a while because I was writing a newsletter at BuzzFeed. And I was like, hey, you think I should do this? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And then like it took a year and a half. You know, I had actually wrote a story while I was at BuzzFeed about how Substack writers were making good money. And, you know, I like yeah. writing emails and thought, oh, maybe this could be an opportunity for me sometime down the line. So anyways, I, I wrote to Hamish and was like, hey, I think I'm going to do it. He's like, okay, do it. And I'm like, all right, I'm doing it. And then I did it. Uh, and there was no, hey, we'll give you, you know, $300,000 this year. To- they were like, right. so yeah, that was, I was going to do it before. for free. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was a couple of funding rounds before where we are today. So ultimately, you know, I made this uh, decision after I had written uh, Always Day One, which is the book that I had that came out in April 2020, uh, which, uh, you know, for all future authors out there, I will advise you not to release a book at the beginning of an awful pandemic. Uh, yeah. Timing was bad. And I was like, all right, well, I got to find some way to keep writing about the stuff that I'm interested from the book. Uh, and I also just love this idea of being independent, following my curiosity and not being beholden to the news cycle in the way that I was as a beat reporter at BuzzFeed, which was a great experience, but it was time for me to move on. And it's been a total blast uh, having done that, making having made that move from uh, traditional to you know what's now uh, a, a pretty vibrant independent journalism world. Um, I'm, I guess oh, I just marked down on my calendar, uh, like when the year anniversary is of like my post announcing like what I was going to do. And it's coming up pretty soon. Happy anniversary. Oh, and, Congrats. Uh, thank you. You know, I didn't know what to expect going into this. I thought I'd be doing a lot more freelance writing than I'm doing now. Uh, I, you know, I put all the good stuff in the newsletter, um, but it's been super fun so far and it feels sustainable, which is a yeah. great and lovely surprise. That's awesome. One of the things we talked about on Twitter is mm. the decision of how to monetize. Yes. So it sounds like the decision to go independent was was pretty uh, driven by the idea of doing a paid newsletter, but also you do ads. Yes. So I'm curious, like, how did ads come about? Do you mm-hmm. think about it like you want it to be the main thing or do you want subscriptions to be the main thing and ads to be a supplement or how, how do you think about, or like other stuff, like, I don't know, NFTs or like you could start a DAO. I Lee will be able to ask you about those things that I don't really know about, but um, yeah, yeah. I'm really so, curious how you think about how to monetize. Yeah. I initially was planning to do subscription um, and now I'm doing, I'm entirely ad supported uh-huh. and uh, I think I'll eventually blend the two. But the idea for me was, you know, when I turn on subscriptions, I don't want it. Okay, so here's the fear, right? You turn on subscriptions and it's a $40,000 a year business. Then you're screwed because you've limited your distribution and you're not making enough money to sustain the business. And so I wanted to reach a size uh, that will make me feel confident that when I turn subscriptions on, that it will be like a $100,000 business or more a year. And, um, and in the meantime, I'm going to do ads and I'll probably keep doing ads even afterward. Uh, but I think ads are, have are a proven way to support content. Um, I don't have a natural aversion to them. Like a lot of people do. I, you know, started my career buying ads and selling ad tech. So this is natural to me. Uh, and I have a good audience that people want to reach, which means I can charge premium rates. So, uh, for me, the idea right now is do it ad supported, see how far I can grow, and then think about what the best way to launch subscription would be, and then make that happen from there. 
So uh, it's uh, definitely going to be a multi-stage thing. Or, you know, another thing that I've been toying around with is, you know, so I write once a week uh, and it's like more of a deeper analysis. Um, Something I've been toying around with is like, do I want to end up writing like, you know, maybe three or four times a week uh, and have it be like more of a news digest or uh, an aggregator and sort of see if I can grow uh, that way. Um, So I I don't know exactly 100% the direction that it's going to go. I'm coming at it every day, you know, willing to risk the core business to build the next thing which is what I think all businesses should do. Um, but ultimately, right now, the model for me is ads. Would you advise? But, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what kind uh, of advice you yeah. would give to other writers about ads versus well, I would just say, yeah, like there's this. So this, so Nathan, you got into this little Twitter war with Austin uh, of Morning Brew about uh, subscription versus ads. You were on the subscription side. Austin was on the ads. Yeah, side. you know, and, beef marketing. It's Yeah, beef marketing. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and, and my personal, pers- you know, uh, perspective is, um, I'm not beholden to either uh, philosophy. Right. I, I think you can make money doing both, uh, and so, um, so right now, making money doing ads, and you know, I think that doing a combination of ads plus subscription is definitely the way to go, where you use ads to make some of your content free and give it the best reach possible. And then you use subscription to build a deeper relationship with your super fans and give them more of the stuff that they like. Uh, and if yeah. you find the right balance to do those two in conjunction, then you've built a very nice business. And it'll hopefully have a satisfying yeah. life as well. So Yeah, totally. Uh, the thing that I worry about with ads mm-hmm. is ads require meetings, right? Especially if you want to sell high-cost ads. Uh, where you've got to like convince someone that your audience is like high quality and you got to do the creative in a way that they like it and bottom of the barrel ads. Sure. Like you can do without any meetings. You can just probably plug into some marketplace Mm. or whatever, but like, do you, do you use a marketplace? Do you do direct sales where you have to have meetings and stuff? Like I just, I worry about time spent not focused on creating things that would be valuable for an audience member, whether it's in front of or behind the paywall. So we've been sold out the first six months of 2021. Mm -hmm. We sell by the month or the quarter. Um, We we do have like a a week, uh, a week option to sponsor a week, but we've been, we've been selling the month. So we haven't had a need to sell a week yet. Uh, And so, sorry, when I say we, I have a guy that helps me. Uh, Okay. And I sold the first quarter on my own, but he's been selling the, the last he sold like the, the second quarter cool. um, and you know, I pay him commission. He gets paid very well. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I, I it's, you know, I, I guess I learned this cause I, you know, selling the book and, you know, I had an agent and I work for work with a speaking agency and they get a commission and, you know, ultimately like there's a great, there's a balance between like doing the content on my own and then having the, um, the, the experts, you know, who are, who are well-versed in how to do this stuff, uh, uh, you know, find a way to sell it. And yeah. so, um, and I knew, like, I, I realized, like, there, there are times where I'm like, oh, I'd like to do the business side more than I'd like to do the writing because I find that part exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I basically created the ad sales deck and then handed it over to this guy and, and said, all right, you know, go crush it. And he's crushing it. And uh, that's awesome. And yeah, I think that we're, we're both happy with the agreement. Um, we split the revenue, the percent, not 50-50, but we have a, uh, 
you know, an agreement where, you know, we both walk away with enough money that, right. that it works and, uh, and it's helped kept, uh, keep the business sustainable. So that's been awesome. Yeah, that's great. So basically you can still focus on just building the audience. Yeah. And then on the podcast side, I use uh, red circle and they mm-hmm. have, they have a sales team uh, that will sell ads. Even with my podcast, we do, you know, 4,000 downloads uh, a week. Um, but that's still large enough for them to go out and sell. Um, and, and obviously like the podcast, you guys know this being podcasters yourselves, uh, podcasting, if you're going to do it right, you have to be in it for, you know, say I'm willing to do this for four or five years. Right. Um, and then maybe it becomes, you know, a really good business if you're doing it independent. Um, So for me, that's what I'm looking at. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I started in August, 2020, uh, I'm happy with where it is right now, but it is a business that takes a very long time to build. Yeah. You got to be patient. Yeah, totally. This was for sure something when I was at Gimlet, it's so hard to build new audiences for new podcasts. And Gimlet mm-hmm. has like world-class editorial teams and like marketing budgets and all this stuff. But podcasts are, people have a very low like Dunbar number for how many podcasts they're going to listen to at mm-hmm. any given point. And um, like discovering new podcasts is like, there's, there's no like, I don't know. There's not a lot of avenues. I mean, this is why people are frankly, I think excited about like clubhouse or Twitter spaces is because it has mm-hmm. greater discovery, I think, um, than, than podcasting does. But yeah, it's, I think it really helps to complement a newsletter with a podcast. Oh um, yeah. Cause you just, you get like an overall, there's like a thinker who you're interested in what they're interested in and they're going to write about it. They're going to talk about it and you can, whatever medium it's just, you know, they complement each other. Cause I find that the, um, you know, conversations spark ideas that you may want to write about and then you write about something and you like really polish an idea and figure out what you think about it. Cause you sit down and you do some research and then that generates ideas for who you might want to talk to. And it just, you can talk about it after you've written about it more easily. So there's just lots of, I feel like that is the stack for sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever think fluencers <laughs> <laughs> is, is writing yeah. and podcasting as like the, the medium. Yeah, I agree. A podcast, like the podcast to me was um, honestly like an afterthought. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw like Brian McCullough, who runs the Tech Meme Ride Home uh, podcast, tweeting about like, you know, the podcast where he wanted to hire some people. And I was just kind of curious. Oh, there's, it was middle of pandemic. I was like, oh, there's still opportunity here. So I called him up. Yeah. And it seemed like there was still opportunity. And, uh, and I just kind of thought it was going to be, you know, there, there was some opportunity. It would be an excuse to speak to an interesting person every week uh, where I wasn't, you know, sure if I would get that access once I left BuzzFeed. And, uh, man, I, I mean, it's been it's been super fun. Uh, and and to watch it grow has been cool. And I think there are, you know, there's, there's this renewed emphasis from Spotify and Apple to increase discovery of new and interesting things. So, and, and an increased willingness of people to listen to podcasts. I think I did this story uh, last week about how um, we still only have like 100 million people in the U.S. listening to podcasts, leaving us 200 million people to expand the market to. And with platforms like Spotify and Apple, you know, trying to make podcasts a real central part of their business, like we're, you know, there there might be a limited number of podcasts one person will, will listen to. And, um, that's fine. But I think there's been this trope that the podcast market is saturated and everyone has a podcast. Don't even bother trying. And I think that's wrong. I think there's a lot of room for growth in this world. Definitely. Lee, I'm curious, like besides ads and subscriptions and whether it be audio ads or, or, you know, video ads, forms of creator monetization that seem top of mind to you, to me are like 
uh, crypto based or kind of like community based or like course based mm-hmm. almost. Like there's just these like other forms of it. I'm curious what like from your perspective, like do you think that more creators should be focused on this? And then from Alex's perspective, have you considered it? Like I, I would be curious cause I'm, I'm very much in the sort of like ads and subscriptions world. And like, mm-hmm. I, it's, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm just very curious to hear what y'all think about those other things that are maybe more emerging. I think there are myriad ways to monetize as a creator that go beyond ads and subscriptions. Um, and I really liked Chris Dixon's post recently about the demand curve among your audience base and how basically like every single follower that you have, everything, every single like email sub that you have, they have a different willingness to pay and charging a subscription basically like is applying this uniform distribution to them. And it leaves money on the table for a lot of people. It excludes a lot of people who can't pay that amount. Um, And like what you want to do is like perfectly price discriminate the way that colleges do with the financial aid office. You're charging people up to like the total amount that they're willing to pay or able to pay. Hmm. Um, So I think like I, I would just love to see like more business models that like allow creators to capture the area under the demand curve and better price discriminate among their audience and offer like, you know, more exclusive premium uh, products to people who are willing to pay more and maybe offer something less expensive to people who are willing to pay less. Um, For me, like offering the course was an example of this. Um, I offered a course earlier this year. It was a cohort-based course live, like taught by me three hours a week. I created the whole curriculum and I charged um, $1,250, which like I summed it up. Um, I think like it's basically equivalent to like how much, you know, a really good newsletter writer probably makes in a whole year. And that was like one course that took place over three weeks. And obviously the people who took it are not your average, like run of the mill passive follower. They're someone who is trying to improve their career, build a business, get insights through which they can start a company. Um, But like, I think that's an example of capitalizing on your super fans or offering a product that is extremely value additive and and charging a price that is uh, commensurate with that value. Um, yeah, it also relates to this post that I wrote last year, a hundred true fans. Like, how can you identify your top, I that one. yeah, top a yeah. hundred fans and actually offer them greater value and be able to like charge a higher price and be able to like subsist off of a hundred true fans. Um, yeah. So I think like, I, I don't, what I don't like about the creator economy right now is like how much of the dialogue and exploration is it around business models feels really unimaginative to me. Yeah. I mean, I I agree. I'm curious if you've considered any like sort of like alternate monetization options from advertising or subscriptions, like, you know, whether it's a course or like a community or like a crypto based thing, like Mm -hmm. doing NFTs or like creating, creating a, what is it? Decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is, does that stuff have any interest to you at all? Or 
like do you think it plugs in or are there different is it like maybe there's a certain type of creator that it's more right for or whatever i'm just curious how you think about these yeah. other ways of monetizing so i i think they're very interesting uh don't laugh at me, but one of the things I've been really curious about is the Twitter super follow, mm-hmm. which mm. they've yet to roll out. But um, for me, I've always thought that like creating a subscription product for big technology would involve some form of community. And, yeah. you know, I like that all in one, you can get exclusive tweets, uh, but you could also get, you know, uh, subscriber only newsletters and subscriber only spaces. And I think the subscriber-only spaces are really interesting where you could say, hey, there's a big thing going on in the news. Let's all get together and talk about it on spaces and I'll try to bring in a guest or or two. And when you think about that, you know, people's inboxes are fairly saturated, but what would they pay to be able to be part of that community? You know, there's a chance that you can charge a premium for that. So I will be very interested to see what happens when the super follow comes out. I don't anticipate myself switching to review. You know, I think I'll probably say on Substack for reasons mm-hmm. we spoke about earlier, which is that um, you become, uh, if you put all your trust in one platform, you can very easily be turned off by that platform. And mm-hmm. I don't want to have that sort of liability, even though the stuff I write isn't exactly, exactly culture work cancel stuff, but you never know. So, um, so, so that, that to me is really interesting. Um, the one thing I'll say is that, uh, thinking about ways to do this stuff. Like I, another reason why I haven't turned on subscriptions right away is because, you know, I don't want to burn out. Um, Mm. and I have to, I'm trying as best as I can and it's not always easy, but I'm trying to be mindful about my mental health and the time that I put into this stuff. And, uh, it's very easy to add work. It's really tough to subtract it. Yeah. Uh, And I'm trying to figure out how can I end up having the best newsletter, the best podcast, uh, and, you know, remain a healthy person all at once. Totally. I completely yes, feel that. I agree. From, <laughs> May we all have that. Yeah. Year and I think change. it's a good call to right. have in mind as creators. Totally. I guess on a closing note, what are the things as a creator that have helped you most to avoid burnout and to stay like happy with this sort of independent thing, which can yeah. so often feel like a grind? Yeah, it definitely feels like grand. I think honestly, like getting a chance to speak with folks like you uh, has been helpful. Like, you know, we've, we're part of this community called Type House. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you've shouted it out before, but like, you know, it, it's extremely lonely to do this on your own. And so um, being able to be part of this Telegram group where a bunch of people who are doing it together compare notes and it's not the most active, but it's still just like, oh, okay, there's other people dealing with similar issues as me, uh, or even like Nathan, I think we've, you know, spoken four times, uh, over the course of the year, Lee, you Mm -hmm. and I have spoken like two or three times. Um, and just having these conversations are, are always helpful. I mean, of course, then there's like the cliche stuff that's true, but like exercise, sleep, that stuff helps and learning your limits. Uh, so I agreed to do this, uh, podcast for Vox called land of the giants, which like went into the, um, history of Google and look through all, you know, through, through seven episodes, look through all the challenges and the opportunities of the company. And that was awesome. But I also learned I probably shouldn't agree to do, you know, right. uh, another full-time job alongside this full-time job that I have. Um, so that's, that's been helpful. Um, and uh, I, I'm not, I won't lie about it. Like I think seeing good responses, seeing growth 
uh, keeps you going. Like that's yeah. what they say. One of the factors of burnout is that you're doing the same thing, but you're not seeing any results from it. Right, and yeah. so like when I have like a poor growth weekend or week or like when the um, when I get like a bunch of unsubscribes from the newsletter or where only a couple people tweet it out, I'm just like, uh, but like when there's a good yeah. response, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I love doing this. Uh, right. Yeah, so, totally. so that factors into it. And uh, I will also say that I'm going to take the month of August completely off. You know, I, I once heard a CEO who was leaving a company that I was working at talk about how, you know, he had been working his butt off for a long time and uh, had a life debt to pay back. And so he was going to go take his motorcycle and drive across the country for a while until hmm. he felt, you know, compelled to return to an office. And, you know, I definitely haven't put in as many years as he has. Um, but, you know, I wrote the book and that was a year and a half of intense work. And then I was like, okay, then the book will come out and I'll see the world again. And then COVID happened. And then right. I said, okay, well, I'm going to start this thing, Big Technology, and then took on the Land of the Giants podcast. And I've been grinding for like literally three straight years. And I feel like I have a bit of a life debt to pay back. So, you know, I won't be hopping on a motorcycle indefinitely, but I am going to take August off and take a deep breath and smell the roses again. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex, yeah. for being here today. Really appreciate your coming on the show. And My pleasure. Yeah, really enjoyed this conversation. Best of luck with everything. Enjoy your vacation. Thank you. Will do. And always great to chat with you both. Bye. See ya. Thanks for having me on.